0: What do you think is the biggest misconception about quantum?
1: This is actually really easy for me to answer. Most people think that quantum technology is 20 to 25 years away because they only think of quantum computers.
0: What's up? I'm Tyler Sweat. Cue the dramatic music. This is All Quiet on the Second Front, the podcast where boring conversations around defense tech and national security come to die. Ready to get weird and learn some cool shit about emerging tech and the government? I thought so. Let's fucking go. This is a Soul Fire production. All right, what's up, everybody? This is Tyler Sweat, your host. Welcome to another episode of All Quiet on the Second Front, the podcast where boring government talk goes to die. Hey-ho.
1: Absolutely.
0: Super excited today. Longtime friend, longtime listener, first-time caller, Jen Spada from Sandbox AQ. Uh, really excited to unpack a whole bunch of stuff i think like almost a decade-long relationship on watching everything you're doing with transforming the government and driving innovation and really really excited so thanks for being here
1: i am so excited to be here It it is amazing that we got together and that we were able to get here in the room at the same time the number of times that we've scheduled and rescheduled is probably a world record
0: yeah i think When I saw you, it's why I texted you today and made sure, and I was like, there's a chance one of us got pulled somewhere else. Let's see. Hopefully not
1: over by the police.
0: Yeah. No, this is, (laughs) this is good. So I think a lot of our listeners will sort of know who you are. You've got an unbelievable brand. You've got an unbelievable sort of career. I think everyone's right. But I'd love to sort of hear the story from your words on coming up through the force, you know, making the decision to transition. Why You made the move you made, sort of what got you, what has you excited? Uh, Take it away a little bit.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, my background's a little different. I was a 25 year Air Force officer who did intelligence, but I didn't do normal intelligence as most people think. I never was an analyst. I never worked for the DGS architecture enterprise. I never supported flying operations. I mean, there's all these things that I never really did as an intelligence officer. I spent most of my time working on new technology defining new requirements, figuring out how intelligence integrated into other weapon systems, and then running organizations like the Air Force Technical Application Center, which did nuclear treaty monitoring that looked globally at worldwide threats that had 3,600 sensors, everything from underground, underwater, in the air, like the sniffer planes that everybody hears about. Those were run by AFTAC, as well as stuff that were with satellites. And from there, I came back to the Pentagon in 2016 and started working on trying to figure out how to bring think tanks, universities, nonprofits, and small to medium businesses into Air Force intelligence. Because at the time, the A26, who was Lieutenant General Jameson, said, hey, there's all this stuff out there and information that we just don't think about. And we need to figure out how do we access it? How do we work with them? How do we really Pull it into our broader ecosystem. And so that is re- where a lot of this started, where I was given the opportunity both at AFTAC, where we were looking at modernizing our force, and then into the Air Force ecosystem, which then impacted the broader DOD, which impacted the intelligence community, and got involved in things like the Defense Innovation Board and ENSIN, which was not called ENSIN at the time, as well as the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum. And so I did that for a couple years. And then Opportunity came up where General Jameson was trying to figure out how do we change how talent management is done, which at that time was called career field management for the Air Force. And I said, let me do this because talent is one of those things that I've always been really, really passionate about. And I felt like we were in this upper out system and that we also had a very prescribed way that you could go through and become a good officer. And that was really not what I wanted to see. So we looked at how do we build a system where people who wanted to be experts could stay experts. People who wanted to become leaders could become leaders. And we could upscale our workforce because that's where we needed to be. We needed to remove ourselves from those legacy programs and legacy systems and look at things like AI, quantum, you know, hypersonics, and other technologies and capabilities that we needed to understand if we were actually going to provide interesting insights for the workforce.
0: So it's funny. I think there's a lot of folks who think, probably incorrectly, that much of the private sector and the, the non-traditionals and sort of the rise of this like innovation cast in the or the dual use cast was driven by the private sector and by folks sort of pushing in and banding together. I think and I'm going to tease this out a little bit, but I think there there's this cadre of folks. You know, I think of you and the Joe Boos and, you know, the, the the Will Ropers and the folks doing the works and all of that, DIU early day, that were trying to set conditions internally to unlock or to maybe to reinforce some of the demand signal. You know, as you look back now, sort of sitting on the outside, do you see some of those those fingerprints? Because I hear you talking about all of these programs and you bring that all together and it's, hey, how do I create? an actual sort of structured on-ramp or connection point for some of this really great stuff that's happening at a different speed, at a different scale outside the traditional sort of confines of the department?
1: Yeah, I you know, I actually think that the demand was driven by inside the government rather than outside the government. And the reason why I say that is that in the first year that I worked that program where I, I tried to bring people into government, I met with 200 small businesses. And the majority of them, had never worked with the government, they didn't know how to work with the government, and they didn't want to work with the government because of the stigma that was attached to working with the government. And then working in concert with AFWorks, for example, at that time, I would pass some companies. I'm like, hey, these guys have take technology or capabilities. An early one was Data Robot, for example. I met Data Robot when they were really, really young. And now they're doing amazing things and have done amazing things. And there's many other examples out there that companies who either took off in the government or got acquired and are now part of larger the larger ecosystem. And then from there, it's sort of like the next phase is now people are like, hmm, maybe this isn't such a bad thing. And with the Megan Metzgers of the world and Decode, who now created a, a program where dual use companies could come in and learn about the government, really changed how we think about the entire ecosystem.
0: Yeah, I love the... One, the shout out to Megan, who I think is coming to shoot with me next week. So I will send you a picture if that actually happens. She is another one where it's impossible for us all to get scheduled. Right. So talk to me, you're using sort of Decode as as a springboard. You make a transition. It's a pretty big splash. It's an awesome organization. Um, Talk to me about sort of why, why Sandbox? Sort of why now? Yeah. Um, And, you know, do you see it as sort of something that you knew you were going to get into? You'd sort of had this passion as you're talking about all these different programs and sort of this non-standard career field, or was it something else? Was it engaging with all of these folks across the private sector and the outside and sort of bringing that all together? But I'd be really curious to one, let everybody know what you guys are actually working on.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, aside from, like I said, the, the quantum realm and Ant-Man and the Wasp.
1: Yeah. We like to, to shrink things and make them really big all the time. So actually, I transitioned out of the government and went to another small business called Mission Tech Solutions. And it was a startup that when I joined, we were three months old. And within a year, we got acquired by a larger company. But what that opportunity did was it gave me the ability to see how a business was run from the beginning. And the two co-founders, who are Jeff Smorgulino and Matt Scott, allowed me to play and learn and make mistakes and um, be able to then transition that skill into what Sandbox needed at the time. I was introduced to the sandbox team when when they were still inside of Alphabet. And of course, it goes back to like relationships. Josh Marcuse introduced me to Fernando Dominguez Pin Pinuaga, who is an amazing individual who was really pushing that organization inside of X. We were sort of a peripheral organization inside of Alphabet, inside of X, their moonshot factory. And they realized that they needed to understand how the federal government work. So they brought me in to build the federal subsidiary from scratch. And it was all the skills that I'd learned in the first startup as to how do you get your duns and your cage code number, tax IDs, build your strategy, build your headcount plans, and all of that. And what drew me to it was the excitement of being on the cutting edge of technology, like you mentioned but also being able to play in, in the public sector space and do good for the, for all of humanity. Because what we were looking at from a technology perspective wasn't just for the public sector, it was for the commercial use cases that are out there. And so we built it inside, and they told me when I joined that it was gonna be like six to nine months before we spun out. I didn't know our CEO well enough at the time, but as I know him now, we spun out four months later and spent four months in in stealth mode and then officially launched in... March of 22, and it's been a wild ride because emerging tech is one of those things that people are really interested in, but they have no idea what it is or how to buy it. And so over the last year and a half, it's been an education process in what the technology really is, what's available today versus what's available in 20 years from now, and who the real players are. And also informing what our adversaries are doing because there's a lot going on in the emerging tech world that people aren't necessarily aware of.
0: There's so many different directions we can go there. All right. So we're gonna go, we're gonna go procurement first, right? Cause I think that is a a resounding sort of battle cry from emerging tech companies all over the like I was just in London having the same conversation on like the perils of procurement and how much of a pain in the ass it is to try to get anything into government. Uh, again, I'll go back to sort of your unique being at senior levels sort of inside of the government, running sort of programs and being outside. You know, when you guys lay down and lay down that sort of annual plan and you're thinking through how are you thinking about procurement? How are you thinking about, you know, maybe finding your hacks on on how to take some of the either the cost or the time or the friction out of the system. And how should folks who are listening maybe try to take some and and apply some of that to how they're planning?
1: Yes. So for a commercial company that's trying to work in the public sector space, the death of all contracting is labor categories and labor rates. If you are not a services company, you shouldn't be playing in that field. And what you really need to think about is how do you provide a package, like a quick start package that enables the government to choose one of those that has your labor categories and how much time you're going to give them and your, your licensing fees And all of the stuff that goes into what you deliver into a quick start so that you don't have to do separate licensing and separate labor categories and separate integration costs and all of these other things that the government doesn't know how to really do on an individual basis. Because typically, they've done a services-based contract where they hire a traditional government contractor who comes in and bills everything from scratch, and they pay for it all, and it now becomes all of their IP, and it's all under government purpose rights, when in reality, Commercial stuff is commercial stuff. So the IP belongs to the company, but they that doesn't mean that they're any less passionate about providing capabilities to the government.
0: So you talk about sort of almost making a unique blend that's got a bundle of some of the services that may be required to do some customer design or do user research or do integration, but also bundles that sort of license. And ideally, that sort of like LSA, legal protections in there yeah. to ensure IP protection. Nice.
1: Yeah. But I would, I'll go one further than a Clint. I'm actually going to call it a SKU. Create a SKU that you just scan the barcode that has all of it together for you. Someone on my team is definitely laughing now because
0: my every time we talk about pricing or sales, <laughs> like swipe the credit card on the website. That's the goal, <laughs> right? Just,
1: exactly. Boom! boom. It they makes it that easy. easy. It makes it yes. easier, and then you don't have to have all these negotiations right. about. Oh, well, that you know that person cost me a dollar more than I want to pay.
0: When you think about going back, I mean that that type of a type of a mindset is the you know AWS dropped like EC2, and it was pennies on the dollar, and an individual could literally say hey, I'm going to go grab a primitive, spin it up, swipe a credit card and go. And you're making it that easy. You're just taking for your buyer, for your customer, you're making it that easy. That's right. And then in exchange, you're also making it easier for you because that cost of sale starts to go down. Because mm-hmm. you're able to just point them through and then you can start to get to repetition and scale.
1: Right. And it, you know, it still goes with a typical licensing model. The more licenses they buy, the cost goes down, but you still need that. Initial quick start. If you're going to another part of an organization where you need to do some integration costs or look at their network or their architecture, that's something you still need to investigate and be able to cover costs for, but not gouge the government on.
0: All right. So you talk about sort of procurement, the act of the act of buying, the scanning of the SKU. How do you guys think about, or how should, how do you, and how should the audience be thinking about sort of awareness and marketing and a mix Right. I always I separate they're separate, but they're mutually sort of reinforcing, you know, broader sort of evangelism, understanding the problem you're solving or the the challenge, the magnitude of. And then also sort of the education, like what is this solution? How does it work? Who is the right or what's the right use case for it? How do you guys think about that?
1: Yeah. So I think in emerging tech, there's a lot of people who say they do something, but they actually really don't do it. You know, Zero Trust, for example, is one of those that comes to mind where there's a lot of people in the Zero Trust realm that don't really understand what Zero Trust really is. And they're using the buzzword to get money from the government because there's so much money behind it. So the first thing that the government needs to do is really understand the technology that they're trying to acquire. And I think as companies, we need to take it upon ourselves to educate first not sell. We need to educate because it does for the entire market. It helps. It helps for us to be able to scale. It helps for us to be able to provide real solutions and it helps the government to make smart choices. And then once the government understands it, then you can talk about how your capabilities actually answer those technological needs.
0: So how do you separate yourself? Recognizing, right, there is a lot of smoke and mirrors. There is is the rise of sort of the the broader government outreach to the private sector has absolutely created some different cottage industries. Uh, You know, there's folks who've written great articles, pretty data-driven ones on like where large amounts of cyber dollars are going. How do you separate from some of that, especially when you're around something like quantum that is like generally very poorly understood and a high degree of variance on that understanding across the community, not only the the specific sort of technical and scientific community, but also that procurement analyst or contracting officer who's trying to read five different proposals or white papers and understand which one and why and are these the same or not? You know, how do you how do you separate yourself and prove that, hey, not only are we real, but, you know, this is appropriate. You should take a you should take a risk or take a take a flyer on us.
1: You know, there's a couple ways to do this. One, thing that I think we need to do is we need to share more openly about the technology that we're working through and that's something that we do at sandboxes we have videos on youtube we are at conferences that aren't just government conferences we're presenting globally about the technology that is of interest to the US government the second thing is to talk openly about where we're operating in the commercial space and the types of customers that we're operating with and then the circumstances under which we're operating. For example, if we've gone head-to-head against other major competitors and we can openly talk about that, we'll talk about that with the government so that they know that we had a head-to-head competition at this bank and now this bank has chosen us over them because of this. It helps with credibility and also accountability because they can now talk to those customers and say, hey, what really happened? And then the last thing I would say is that we need to be able to demonstrate our capabilities Openly to the U.S. government, and not just have a PowerPoint presentation, but actually a real live demonstration. And it may be in a demo environment because we can't operate and show client data and customer data. But to show what we can do is really important for all of those things I mentioned.
0: Yeah, I think that last point has been a a hope of many of us for years. Uh, just the fact that the government will spend billions of dollars on software and it buys that software off a microsoft word document and not out of some type of technical demonstration Mm -hmm. um
1: the other thing i will say is that they will buy something based on the the promise of a delivery of a capability that's being built from scratch rather than a capability that already exists
0: oh yeah well i mean i got a lot of that and this is where you know will rober was, was right talking about hey You can't take the way you buy a new airplane where post sort of last supper, you consolidate the industry down to, you know, three to five organizations, two of which could build the bird you want. So you're doing a sort of buy spec. That's not software. That's right. I think that's been part of the problem is, you know, the hardware to software, the sort of metal bending versus slinging code. I think the, the lack of understanding around data and, and I'm not in any way besmirching the T&E community because they do it.
1: Hey, I did t for almost four years. They do a
0: bunch of wild shit, like <laughs> thankless, thankless work. But I don't think they've been empowered in a scaled manner to deal with software. So you're seeing organizations now that are starting to try to change that front door from a procurement standpoint that are talking about, hey, if we had a, no pun intended, like, sandbox environment and could do functional testing pre-procurement what would that look like Mm -hmm. but the fact that with all of the money going to innovation and all these sort of cyber contracts going to the dual use community and ot's out of diu that we don't have some standardized sort of test environment is wild to me
1: it is (laughs) absolutely is and that's what an ot is designed for is to have a, (laughs) a, a prototype environment and then so you can transition into production. And I think that, that, if we actually talked about this more broadly, we could consolidate resources and build these test environments more effectively.
0: Yeah. The consolidation will probably cause a little bit of heartache. Oh, it's, uh, sure, yeah. well,
1: Budgets, <laughs> not my budget. You're not going to yeah, touch like my budget.
0: Somebody's fiefdom has to die so yep. everyone can live. Mm-hmm. So talking about you guys sort of traveling around some of the evangelism on a global scale. Um, Spin that on its head and not to get sort of into the froggy side, but let's talk about sort of the adversarial awareness. And I mean, it's no secret with sort of near peer and great power and pick your buzzword of the week, right? There are efforts and there is an increased, I think, at least in my career, probably the most aligned. I think I've seen like the buildings, buildings and the hill on a specific threat vector. Mm hmm. What does it look like for a company like you that's sort of sitting right in the middle of like really interesting emerging tech, but with a clear national security slant in it?
1: Yeah, so it's something that we think about a lot. And what's really interesting about quantum technology is that the European community, much of the Asian community, as well as the United States, North American community are very focused on quantum. And we also understand that the quantum spend globally, uh, let's just say that the quantum spend in 2021 was $21 million globally. Of that, the United States, to include venture funding and the National Quantum Initiative, was only $4.5 billion. And so that leaves the rest of the world. Well, guess what? There's one country in particular that spent $21 billion in that year. and, And then in 2022, they spent $25 billion on just quantum alone. Or excuse me, they spent $10 billion and then $25 billion. And so we look at just the size, scope, and scale of what's going on, and we have to be very thoughtful. And this is just isn't for quantum, but for global uh, cooperation, is what are we putting export controls on? How are we playing in the, the different collaborative environments, such as AUKUS and the Quad and other places? And how do we continue to build an ecosystem that enables us to make leaps and bounds in technology?
0: Right, and I think that, I mean that's near and dear to my heart. I mean, before Second Front, we, I was lamenting to you when I was at Calypso and I was running up in the Hill, what, 2018, 2019, sort of waving a flag to the Hask and the Sask and all these staffers and saying, hey, AI security is this huge issue. We have to get ahead of this. We're being outspent. It's going to be ungovernable. And like Congress resoundedly was like, yeah, all right, whatever, nerd. And just sent me back. And I was like, this is going to be a huge problem. And you're seeing it now. That's right, with everyone trying to figure out when it's too late, like, hey, how would we retroactively sort of put you can't put it back in the box?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Are you seeing support I, I had to ask this question the right way. Are you seeing positive signals from the hill? And I'll juxtapose that with, the first private artificial intelligence hearing is like next week or last week. Mm-hmm. And we're, yeah, five years too late for that to be the first one. So how are they, or how are you seeing sort of signals? from them or other governing bodies um, in terms of quantum reg?
1: We actually are seeing a lot of good impact and a lot of good thought on it. On the National Quantum Initiative, there was just a hearing last week on it. They brought together experts from both government and outside of government, as well as consortiums to talk about this. So like, hey, wow, it's not just people inside of government talking through it. We also see that people are being thoughtful and asking questions before they put things in place. For example, we had somebody say, hey, let's like put a export control on dilution fridges. And we said, technology is already out there. We're only going to hurt ourselves by doing that. And they're like, oh yeah, I guess we should think about that. And the other thing I will say is that there are a lot of organizations that are looking at how do we collectively work together. So it is, it's a competemates environment in the quantum space. And it may be because we're it is such an emerging tech that we do have to work together because we one, the technology is so crazy that you can't do it all alone. Two, we have to educate. And three, it's, it's something that's you know, globally going to impact what we do.
0: All right. So two last questions. What, is, what do you think is the biggest misconception about quantum? And I recognize that it's probably just a monstrosity of a question.
1: No, this is actually really easy for me to answer. Most people think that quantum technology is 20 to 25 years away because they only think of quantum computers. But do you know when quantum computing actually started or quantum technology started? When? In like the 1800s. And the MRI machine that you go get, that's a quantum machine. It's been around since the 50s. So quantum sensing, quantum secure communications, and then simulating quantum computers is technology that you can use today.
0: That's pretty neat. So you've got all the folks that are thinking, oh, this is just sort of science fiction, not recognizing that they're actually consumers of quantum right now.
1: That's exactly right. Oh, that's pretty cool. I didn't Mm -hmm.
0: think of that that way. Thank you for that. You're welcome. All right. Last question. This is the famous, Hey, Tyler needs to structure these. So I ask everybody sort of when the work is done, what does sort of retirement home on the range? What do you want life to look like? Right. I always talk, Hey, want a mountain, want a river, want an outdoor kitchen, bunch of space, kids, grandkids, dogs running everywhere. What's that look like for you?
1: Yeah. So I want a beach, but I also want the mountains. And I want a winery close by, but I also, I really want to keep, I love to teach and I love to talk about topics that most people don't understand. And that's what drew me to quantum is I didn't know anything about quantum before I joined sandbox AQ. And I want to continue to be someone that people can bounce ideas off of, talk to, and I want to continue to learn myself.
0: That's an awesome answer. And I can say with a high degree of confidence, I don't think you'll ever stop being someone who people want to bounce ideas off of and learn from. So thanks for whatever, or thank you for what you've done and are continuing to do in the industry. And as always buddy, it's a pleasure.
1: Thank you. I love doing this with you. It's amazing time.
0: Wow, look at you, you made it to the end. Thanks for listening. Hope you learned something. Don't forget to leave a passive aggressive review. It wouldn't be a podcast without some show notes. So check them out to learn more about me, Second Front. Stay weird.